Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw. And today we have a follow-up and companion episode to the fantastic show that I did with Dr. Allison Russo when we talked about anesthesia for craniotomies. And today we're going to talk about anesthesia for spine surgery. So I am excited to welcome Dr. Russo back to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Jed. The format this time is going to be very similar to the crany episode. Great. We're all looking forward to it. And I will say that uh, this episode is going to be featured on anesthesiologynews.com. They're really interested in this topic. They think it'll be really useful for their readership. As everyone knows, anesthesiologynews.com is a great independent monthly newspaper. They've got all kinds of great archives, multimedia, and web content. So check it out, and you'll see this episode featured there, along with a bunch of other ACRAC episodes that they have featured in the past. All right, let's jump in and talk about uh, spine surgery. So, Allison, when we think about uh, what we want to uh, keep in mind when we're preparing to do anesthesia for spine surgery, what comes to mind for you? So there are a couple different things that I typically think about when I'm approaching my spine patients, and we're going to start out by talking about my preoperative evaluation. Um, There are a couple key elements that I think about. Um, As we talked about in the craniotomy episode, I I think about what procedure the patient is going to be undergoing. Is this going to be a laminectomy and or a discectomy, or is this going to be a larger fusion surgery? As my management for those may be a little bit different in terms of the analgesics that I administer and the my fluid management or my blood management for those. Um, this is also going to influence how many IVs I have, whether I feel like I need to place a central line, and whether I feel as though I need an arterial line for the procedure specifically. There may be an indication um, from a patient perspective based on their medical history, but um, typically if it's going to be a very large multi-level fusion, I may choose to place an arterial line to check frequent labs, um, and especially since these patients tend to bleed depending on the experience of, of your surgeons and, and what kinds of adjuncts they use to preserve um, blood, like a cell saver to give blood back. Um, I also make note of whether this is a primary surgery and or whether the patient has had surgery on their back before and whether the surgical site is the same as before um, because this this may influence um, how complicated the surgery may be and how much blood loss is anticipated. If I'm expecting a larger procedure, then I may even choose to have a cooler of blood in the room to be ready to transfuse if need be. Great. So would I be correct in saying that things that clue you in that this might be a larger blood loss case and therefore you might want a little bit more monitoring like an arterial line, maybe even a central line, and maybe even a cooler blood in the room would be bigger, so more more levels of fusion if it's a, if it's a posterior spinal fusion, uh, and revisions as opposed to first-time cases. Correct. And then what about uh, surgery for cancer? Do you think of that as being potentially more bloody? Yes, and it, um, we do see quite a few patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Some of these patients, because of the concern of bleeding, they will um, go to our um, 
interventional radiology suite in order to have their tumor embolized prior to resection because these tumors tend to bleed quite a lot and they can be very invasive in the bone. Um, so yes, I would anticipate those to bleed a little bit more too. Great. All right. So you had mentioned that obviously one of the things that will influence your choice of monitors and other things is the comorbidities of the patient. So what do you look for in a medical history when you're preparing for a spine case? So um, with any of my spine surgeries, of, of course, starting with your, your basic medical conditions that the patients may have, um, patients who are coming in for um, significant spine surgeries may have kyphoscoliosis. They may have significant restrictive lung disease if, if the um, kyphosis and, and scoliosis is, is significant enough. Um, and that may influence your ability to adequately ventilate and oxygenate the patient during the case. Um, the other, aside from all the other things that we typically see with older patients, hypertension, diabetes, um, you know, we do worry about blood pressure management. Where does their blood pressure run at baseline? As that can be very important in thinking about cord perfusion during the surgery. Um, we already talked a little bit about whether they've had prior surgery at the proposed surgical site. Um, and, and I also think about what symptoms they're having. So the surgeon's note can be very helpful in, in this regard. They will often have seen the patients in clinic and have written a pretty detailed neurologic assessment um, because oftentimes patients, if they're, especially if they're having lower back surgeries, they may have some degree of cord impingement. Um, they may have radicular symptoms. They may have lower extremity weakness and all of the, and, or if they're having C-spine surgery, they may have myelopathy or radiculopathy. And the ba understanding what their baseline is and why they're coming in to me is very important. Um, and so that will affect my management, whether it means that we need to have an advanced airway technique um, if it's a, a cervical spine stenosis, <clears throat> or if um, we think that we need to have a total IV anesthetic technique from the start um, in order to have the best outcomes from a neuro, neuro monitoring perspective during the surgery. Yeah, so uh, when you say advanced airway technique, um, you're thinking more uh, or thinking along the lines of like a fiber optic intubation, mm -hmm. whether awake or asleep, but as opposed to a traditional DL. That's correct. So I, I generally, um, for the C-spine surgeries, I, I, I generally try to be very careful with neck um, extension, and I will often use a video laryngoscope in order to carefully place the endotracheal tube without putting significant traction on the neck. Um, I, in some cases, I may elect to do a, a even an awake fiber optic, um, sometimes an asleep fiber optic, depending on what the patient's symptoms are. And this is often, um, it's often a conversation that I have with the surgeons preoperatively to determine um, what they think the patient needs and, and what um, what I feel the patient needs as well. Great. All right. What about labs? What are your labs you want to see before you go back? So I, of course, think about the um, any electrolyte imbalances that we do for any surgery. My, um, I also pay very close attention to hemoglobin levels. Where, where is the patient starting? Um, are they starting anemic? Are they starting um, at pretty normal levels? Do they have any coagulopathies? Have they been on any anticoagulants? And as these can potentially influence my transfusion um, my transfusion parameters. So typically at um, at my institution, um, our surgeons have a, um, a transfusion goal for most of our older patients, especially closer to 10, um, especially in, in a patient who's getting a pretty extensive large fusion. Um, they can lose 
pretty significant amounts of of blood. And so this is, but the the transfusion goal should certainly be discussed with the surgeon and um, taken into consider. The clinical picture should be taken into consideration. So a young, healthy patient may not need. Um, may not need quite the same transfusion trigger as an older patient with significant comorbidities. And part of my thinking about this is maintaining adequate oxygen carrying capacity to the spinal cord. And so if there has been some degree of neurologic um, impairment based on impingement to the spinal cord, um, I want to make sure that A, we're adequately perfusing and maintaining adequate blood pressures and giving adequate oxygen carrying capacity. So the hemoglobin is very important in my mind. Um, if the patient has a coagulopathy starting, that may mean that they're, they may be more prone to bleeding um, early in the case and, and oozing. And that may mean that we need to trans start transfusing platelets or um, FFP early in the case. Great. Now, I always think it's interesting... You, people will will ask me, especially in the ICU, what are you, what's your transfusion threshold? Is it seven or eight? Those are the two people hear most about. And I think it's important to tease out that the operating room environment is different than the floor or even ICU in the sense that we don't go by those same strict transfusion thresholds. We don't necessarily wait until someone is at seven or eight before we transfuse, partly because there may be sudden and ongoing bleeding in the operating room, and the patient is also under general anesthesia and so does not have the same autoregulation that they may have without general anesthesia. What do you think about that? Correct. So, so that's in, so. So, I get asked this question by residents all the time, and I think that's that's my basic um, explanation. Is you're in the operating room, you may have significant and ongoing bleeding and blood loss. If you check a lab and you don't get the results for 30 minutes, if the surgeon has been operating and there's another 300, 400 cc's of blood in the in the canisters or on the laps, you know that you're even further behind at that point. Um, I will also say that sometimes in some of the larger surgeries that we do, it can be very difficult to get caught up. So if we check our labs and even if the patient is, is hemodynamically okay, but we're starting to drift down, if our hemoglobin is nine or eight, um, some patients have an ability to compensate up to a point, but then when their hemoglobin dips below a certain goal, then they become very hemodynamically unstable. Um, so it's usually a conversation that I have with the surgeons um, about what their triggers are, but in general, I have a higher threshold for um, beginning my transfusing a little bit earlier with the understanding that um, they're likely going to be losing more. I would agree with that. Now, on the flip side, I will say that in the ICU, if you have a patient who has come to the ICU after a spine surgery for, let's say, neuro checks uh, overnight, they are not bleeding. Their hemoglobin is stable at, let's say, 7.5. There is no evidence that I'm aware of to suggest that their outcomes will be better if they get transfused to 8. So in general, though you will hear it, you will definitely hear some surgeons who want their patients above 8 or even in the double digits. Uh, uh, I would love, if someone out there is aware of data of a good study to show that there are better outcomes, I'd love to see it. Send it on over. But uh, I believe there is not. And so we really should be using 7 or in the case of a patient with active coronary artery disease, then 8 as our threshold in a stable post-op patient, but you, you may get asked to do it differently by a surgeon. And, and I would definitely agree with that. I think post-operative period is a very different time. I think it's still appropriate to, to follow hemoglobin levels serially. Oftentimes these patients have drains in place and they may continue to ooze and bleed, but the, the triggers should be very different than they are in the operating room. Great. All right, let's move on to other things you look preoperatively. Uh, how about imaging? 
Um, as with any any neuro case that I do, I always take a look at the imaging to get a sense of how significant the pathology is and and where it is. Um, you know, we can always read the surgeon's note, but I feel for me it's very important to understand um, what the surgeons are also looking at, and and that I think promotes a conversation with the surgical teams too. Um, the other things that the other thing that I would think about too, and and before going back to the operating room is what kind of medications these patients are already on. Many of our patients have pretty significant chronic back pain. Um, they may not be able to ambulate very well because of their back pain. And it, it's very important for me to understand not only what medications they're on, but also what dosing they're taking at home. Um, have they been seeing a pain management specialist? What have they tried? What works really well for them? What doesn't work as well? Um, and also how frequently they're taking their medication. So if if in our electronic system, um, you know, it says that they're taking oxycodone, 15 milligrams every four hours as needed, it's important for me to understand, are they really taking it every four hours? Are they getting up in the middle of the night to take their oxycodone or are they taking it two or three times a day only if they if they feel like they really need it? And how functional are they on, on that dose of um, medication? And that that's going to help me make my decision about analgesics intraoperatively, um, how much, not only how much to give, but also which analgesics I may choose to administer. Um, pretty typically, I will give my patients one gram of Tylenol preoperatively and gabapentin that can help with neuropathic pain anywhere between six and 1200 milligrams preoperatively. Um, this is also assuming normal liver and kidney function, so we need to keep that into consideration as well. Um, if you're a resident or working with attendings, always discuss with your attending before you order any preoperative medications. Your attendings may have different um, reasonings as to why they want certain ones or or not. Um, and so these are some of the analgesics that I'll give in the preoperative period. And then we'll talk about some of the, some of the analgesic strategies I have intraoperatively. How about sub-Q heparin? We, for, for example, gynecology cases or um, abdominal cases, we will give sub-Q heparin preoperatively. What about for spine cases? Um, or at least at Johns Hopkins, we typically don't give heparin for these cases. The surgeon uh, preoperatively, you know, the surgeons don't want um, anything that's going to be promoting <clears throat> further oozing or bleeding in their surgical field. So we we tend to um, we tend to hold off on that early. Great. So of course, check with your local um, protocols at your hospital. But here, we don't do the sub-Q heparin for spine cases. All right. Let's move to intraoperative management. What do you think of, uh, and what do you think the important points are to consider intraoperatively for these patients? Um, so first, I think safety is one of, as an anesthesiologist, safety is one of my number one priorities. Um, and for spine surgeries, some of the things that we think about are proper patient positioning during these cases. Um, many of the um, posterior fusions that we do, obviously these patients are going to be positioned so that they are um, prone for the for the duration of the case. And proper positioning is, is key so that we can help avoid significant nerve injuries and pressure ulcers. And then blindness is certainly something that we worry about, specifically posterior ischemic optic neuropathy, um, from patients being prone for extended periods of time. Um, typically, we'll have some sort of face pillow or face rest so that the and making sure that the eye, the patient's eyes are are free and that there's no compression on the orbits and these should be checked regularly throughout the case to make sure they're still free i have had cases where um, patients can shift during the surgery and um, so you want to you definitely want to make sure that that there's no compression on the on the orbits um 
The other things that we do, we typically pad the arms with either egg crate or gel pads, making sure that all the pressure points, the ulnar nerve is well padded and protected. The legs should be appropriately padded with pillows or bolsters. Um, depending on what kind of frame the, the surgical team is using for the case, the torso is also going to be um, supported in, in different ways, um, usually making sure that the abdomen is free in some way to prevent excessive compression. Um, if you feel that your patient has shifted or you are experiencing some problem with positioning, either during the positioning process or at some point during the case, it's very important to speak up. And this is something that I try to emphasize to my residents and CRNAs that I work with because patients can shift in unanticipated ways um, and the surgical team may not be aware of it. And, and that's part of our role in, in this. Um, I will also say that when you're, when you're positioning the patient prone, there are always risks of loss of airway and lines, potential for hemodynamic changes as, as you're doing that as well. Um, and talk with your attendings um, or colleagues about how to safely flip the patient um, while maintaining all of your monitors and lines. Some providers feel comfortable disconnecting the lines from the monitors while they, while they flip the patient prone. Um, I prefer to keep my monitors on so that I can have an an assessment the whole time of how my patient is doing hemodynamically. Um, typically, I, I will disconnect the um, endotracheal tube from the circuit and hold on to the endotracheal tube as we turn the patient prone. Um, and so how do you do that, Allison, without getting everything tangled up? Do you, do you put everything on sort of the inside of the patient so that when you, you turn there, it's not getting kind of too tangled? Or how do you, how do you keep all the monitors on? Because I... I don't do spines anymore, but back, hardly ever. But when I used to, as a resident, uh, I got to a point where I just took everything off because I couldn't figure out how to stop the tangling from happening if I kept it on. So do you have any tips for people who are trying to do it? Yes, I can I can certainly share my tips. And it, I will say that your experience is, is not unique, and it's very easy to end up with spaghetti at the beginning of the day with all of our lines. Um, so the things that I typically do is... Um, I will place the EKG leads on the back, um, typically under the arms while the patient is still awake on the stretcher, um, and I'll have it have them kind of coming up towards the head of, of the patient. Um, I generally try to make sure that um, all of my lines are tucked up against the patient's arms as we're about to turn. So oftentimes the blood pressure cuff might be on one side. The IV that they come with is probably going to be hooked up. It may be on the same side as the cuff or on the other side. Um, and so what I, what I generally try to do is have one, one IV connected as we're, um, as we're turning. And so I don't connect all of my lines while, um, or before we, we turn, I'll connect everything afterwards. And I find that that, that actually helps. Um, but at, and and as we're turning, um, I'll try to have somebody kind of holding against the arms the the lines that we do have. So the blood pressure cuff and the pulse ox. I'll try to have those cables all either against the arms and kind of holding up towards the head. It it it's easier said than done, and there's certainly um, many different ways that you can try to approach this. But in in my experience, this tends to work pretty well. It's usually flipping from patients being prone to being supine again, that we run into more challenges as we have all of our lines and potentially our, our arterial line hooked up at that time as well. So um, so that being said, go, placing patients in the prone positioning, I'll just hook every all my IVs and arterial lines up 
at that point. But but I find that this generally works for me. All right, great. Thank you. So let's talk about hemodynamic stability. How do you maintain it and what are you what are you worried about? So when we talk about hemodynamic stability for these cases, um, what I think about is cord perfusion. So as as we talked about earlier, cord perfusion is is very important for neurologic functioning, but many of these patients in my mind, if they have if they have neurologic deficits of some sort, many of them come in not just having pain, but they have some radiculopathy or weakness in their in their arms or legs. Um, I want to make sure that we are adequately perfusing um, their spinal cord. So um, I always discuss blood pressure goals with the surgical team, and I make note of what the patient's baseline blood pressure is, and I generally try not to deviate too far from their baseline. Um, I do recognize that sometimes surgeons have um, different thresholds for where they want their, their blood pressure goals to be um, from their perspective to help minimize blood loss, um, but I do think that we need to be very careful about how low we're letting patients' blood pressures get. Um, in the past, we've we've certainly um, discussed doing intraoperative deliberate hypotension for some of these cases. But I think as a as a culture, we're moving away from that. And if my if my surgeons are asking me to drop the blood pressure lower than I feel is comfortable, then um, I think this should be an attending to attending conversation um, about why are we pushing that direction and um, should we be letting the blood pressure drift too low. But in general, um, I try to I try to keep the patient pretty normotensive um, or as normal as their their baseline is. We certainly have many patients who have very poorly controlled hypertension at baseline and that can be challenging during some of these cases. Um, the other thing that I will also think about is if your patient is for some reason becoming hypotensive and um, you're having difficulty meeting a baseline blood pressure goal, um, I always encourage my residents to think about why is that the case. So if your patient's becoming hypotensive, consider significant hypovolemia. Um, Vasopressors, I'll often have my residents ask me about starting a vasopressor infusion. And while I think it can be useful in some situations, if you find that your patient is having an increased vasopressor requirement, this may be a sign of significant hypovolemia. And instead of administering vasopressors, what we really should be doing is administering volume. And, and in many cases, that may mean um, a blood transfusion of right. some sort. So I, I, what I think is really key about what you said is that it's not the presence of vasopressors. And so, for example, we cause systemic vasodilation with our anesthesia, whether that's a TIVA or an inhaled anesthetic. And so some amount of vasopressor is often required to offset that and keep a normal blood pressure. However, the key in what you said is if that vasopressor requirement is going up, that is, unless you also were turning your anesthetic up, it, that indicates something else is going on. And so what you want to keep in mind are what else could be happening. Could be volume, could be obviously something more ominous like cardiac ischemia. So you want to just be aware it isn't normal to keep titrating your presser up once you've achieved a good blood pressure with a, with a reasonable dose of a vasopressor infusion. So let's talk about volume. You said uh, that that's something to keep in mind. So how do you think about volume management during these cases? So my general rule of thumb for patients who are in the prone position having spine surgery is that I will limit, no matter how long the case is scheduled to go for, no matter how long it has been going, I generally try to limit to about two to three liters of crystalloid for the whole case. Um, my reasoning for this is because the more, 
the crystalloid that we administer, it's remember, it's not all going to be staying intravascularly. So only about a third of that is going to stay intravascular over time. It's going to go to extravascular spaces. It's going to go into the interstitial tissues, what we call third spacing. Um, and that's going to lead to significant edema. We worry about orbital edema. We worry about facial and airway edema after these cases. So as a general rule of thumb, I try to limit the amount of crystalloid that I'm administering, and you can administer it slowly over the case. It doesn't have to be, you know, all at once or delayed until the end. Um, I will say that one, one common mistake is after induction, not looking at the at the bag of crystalloid that's already hanging and you turn around and all of a sudden one liter is already in. That's very easy to do. Very easy. So um, I, I try to encourage my residents to keep scanning the room and, you know, if I haven't already clamped off the fluids, try to decrease them pretty early. Um, Another good tip there that I was taught that I love and I still do is that if you give a medication and you open up your fluids to flush in that medication, keep your hand on the line and then... That way you won't forget to turn it back off because you're still holding it. Same goes if you ever turn up your anesthetic very high, your, your inhaled anesthetic very high to deal with maybe some hypertension. Keep your hand on it so you remember to turn it back down. And that's that's a great trick. <laughs> I, I really like that. Um, so the, the I, I you know I generally find that if I am um, Giving, if I feel like I need to give more um, fluids to the patient, but I, I haven't reached a transfusion trigger or I don't feel that they've lost significant amounts of um, blood, but they, they are needing a little bit of volume um, based on how, how the surgery is going or based on my hemodynamic parameters, um, I will consider giving um, albumin to these patients if I don't feel that they're ready to get red blood cells. Um, and typically, I'll start with about two, 250 cc's of 5% albumin if, um, if I feel that this is appropriate. Um, but if you, if you feel that you're ready to transfuse the patient, um, always talk to the surgical team first. Let your attending know um, that you feel this, it's about time to start transfusing so that they're aware. Um, the surgical team may have some input on how much more time they have or how much more blood loss they're anticipating. Um, and as alluded to earlier, I think it's it's very important to stay ahead of the blood loss rather than being reactive to a situation when you're already behind. Patients can get very coagulopathic. Um, I tend to have a, if, if I know that I'm going to be transfusing quite a bit during a case based on my understanding of the procedure or in working with our surgeons um, over time, then I will either transfuse my red blood cells and my FFP in a one-to-one -one or two-to-one strategy just so that we don't deplete the, the coagulation factors. And once I get to about six units of, of red blood cells, I'll also transfuse a unit of platelets. Um, for some institutions, this may seem like quite an aggressive approach. Um, what I found is that if we if we delay and we only give red cells or we don't appropriately give enough of the plasma to replete those clotting factors, then the surgical teams do run into more um, more difficulty with with bleeding and oozing in their surgical field. Um, some of our surgeons have started to ask for tranexamic acid, which we do use to help um, help decrease the blood loss intraoperatively. The other things that we try to do as well as use cell saver. Um, however, we, we do recognize that um, not everything that the patient is losing is going to be going into the cell saver, and we're not going to be giving all of that back, too. So just being prepared and being proactive, I think, is, is 
um, my general strategy. And, and as I mentioned earlier too, sometimes if I know that, that I'm gonna be transfusing, I'll have a cooler of the blood in the room, I'll check the blood with my residents or have them check it with one of our techs to make sure that when you get to the point that you need to start transfusing, you are ready to go and you can start um, hanging that blood. Um, I will note, that, and this may be very Hopkins specific, I'm not sure, that um, the red blood cells um, with our coolers need to go under the ice bags and the FFP should always be on top. So just be aware of that um, for our residents here. Yeah, and, and I'm sure that's probably similar elsewhere, but the really, the key message is find out what is required. And this, this plays a role, obviously you want the blood and FFP to be useful when you want to give it, but it's also if you don't use it. So here... If we return blood, a cooler and there's blood on top of the ice or FFP under the ice, it'll get thrown out. And as everybody knows, blood, FFP, blood products are scarce resources. We don't want to waste them. So find out what the requirements are at your institution and make sure you follow them. Even when you're in a rush, just make sure stick stick that blood under the ice, keep that FFP on top of the ice so that it doesn't get wasted if you don't need it. I just want to point out, you mentioned tranexamic acid, sometimes referred to as TXA, which is an antifibrinolytic. And so the idea there is that once clot has formed, it prevents the breakdown of that clot and then hopefully reduces the bleeding. So um, also something to keep in mind if it's in use at your institution. All right, let's talk about pain control. So what, what do you do during these cases? Obviously, these are not cases that have regional as an option. There's no epidural for these cases, um, no regional nerve blocks. So what so do you... So it's actually interesting. I'm going to... I'm sorry for yeah, no, please. It's actually interesting that you mentioned that. Some institutions um, do... The surgical teams will place epidurals um, for some of the thoracic spine surgeries that they do. Okay. Um, this is not something that we do at... Hopkins, but it's certainly something that um, our listeners may be familiar with at their at their institutions. One thing that I'm sort of interested in doing is is seeing are there any nerve blocks that we could potentially do for the spine cases. So, um, erector spinae blocks are ones that are starting to come up as a potential. Um, a potential analgesic adjunct. And so I, I think we are going to start seeing a little bit more in terms of maybe some regional techniques, although some of these are certainly not used everywhere, but keep them on your radar. Great. Very interesting. I was not aware, so I'm excited to learn more. All right. Well, so let's talk about what you do uh, aside from these blocks that may be kind of on the horizon. What do you do uh, for pain control during the anesthetic? Um, so I will say that one of my, uh, one of the things that I am passionate about is pain control in this patient population because I think spine surgery is very painful and these patients already have chronic pain at baseline and we're going to be exacerbating that. They're going to have acute on chronic pain. There, Many of these patients are going to have higher opioid requirements than opioid naive patients. Um, for, patients for my patients who have who are on high dose opioids preoperatively um, or, or patients who are undergoing a larger fusion, I very routinely run ketamine during my cases. It's an NMDA receptor antagonist. Um, it has great analgesic properties. I do warn my patients that they may have bad dreams or hallucinations with the ketamine, but I use it in an effort to um, to help them with their pain um, into the post-operative period. Um, and so I think it can, it can help with our opioid requirement during the case. Um, for some of my patients, I also consider using methadone. Um, I typically start with 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams per kilo IV. I'll, I'll usually give this at the start of the case. 
um, if it's going to be a very extensive all-day fusion. And I'll often talk to the surgeons about that ahead of time because I know some surgeons have their own cocktail that they will use intraoperatively. So we have surgeons who give their own intrathecal dose of, of um, intrathecal morphine or duramorph. Um, we have other surgeons who have their own special epidural paste preparation that they like to use. And so if they're planning on administering a long-acting agent, then I'll typically hold off on the methadone um, up front. But I do think that this can be another useful adjunct. Um, I will often titrate fentanyl up front with my, even before I induce anesthesia. So the patients in the room, they're on, we're getting them on the monitors. I'll start working in some fentanyl. And this, I use this to kind of help me get a sense of, you know, if the patient is saying that they're having eight or nine out of 10 pain right now, how much fentanyl is it going to take to get them down to a comfortable level? So I'll often start, if they have an opioid um, tolerance, I'll often start with 250 or 300 mics and wait a couple minutes and just kind of see how they, how their pain score changes with that. How, how do they feel that they are doing? Um, and this can help me determine what they're going to need intraoperatively. And I, I just try to get them as comfortable as I can beforehand. So um, I tell my residents, have at least 500 mics of fentanyl ready to go at the start of the case. For patients with significant chronic pain history, consider having 1,000 mics pulled out for induction. Some patients are able to tolerate this um, just fine. It can also help decrease um, the amount of uh, propofol or other agent that you're planning on using for, for your induction. Um, I will typically use fentanyl during the during the cases. Um, some some anesthesiologists also administer hydromorphone. Um, I think other adjuncts that can be useful are nitrous oxide and magnesium. Also has some analgesic properties, so I will consider giving two grams of magnesium um, intraoperatively as well. Um, I will also say that once you have an analgesic strategy for the case. Um, Try not to deviate from it unless you have unless you've discussed it with your attending. Many attendings have very specific preferences, and it's good to be on the same page about um, about your analgesic strategy as well as your basic anesthetic strategy for the case. Great. So one of my favorite attendings to work with when I was a resident was his name was Jeremy Lieberman. He's probably still practicing at UCSF. Um, and uh, if anyone from UCSF is listening, say hi to Jeremy for me if he's still there. But he used to love IV lidocaine, so we'd use that during spine cases. Um, do you use that at all? Um, I don't hear, but I, um, over at Bayview, we are working on developing an ERAS program over there, and we've tried to incorporate it there. So um, there is a lot of data for IV lidocaine, and I think it's something that I would like to bring here. It's just not something that we routinely do yet, um, but I, I, um, I know there is a lot of data that it can be very useful. Great. All right. So let's talk about the general maintenance of anesthesia and kind of your general approach. So you had mentioned earlier uh, that you might use inhaled anesthetic or you might do a TIVA. And one of the factors that might influence that would be the neural monitoring that's happening. So talk a little more about that. Yeah, so um, we can have a whole separate podcast on neuromonitoring um, for these cases. But I do think that it's important to understand what are we going to be monitoring intraoperatively and having at least a basic understanding of how is our how are our anesthetics going to be affecting um, what 
what we're going to be monitoring intraoperatively. Um, some of, for some surgeries, our surgeons really want a baseline neurologic uh, or, or neuromonitoring um, signals before we, after we induce anesthesia, but before we turn the patient prone. Um, and so that's important to, to understand. We pretty routinely do use some degree of muscle relaxant during these cases to um, some of our surgeons feel that they get better exposure when the muscles are more relaxed. And so if, if your surgeons need to run um, motor evoked potentials or MEPs before you turn prone, that may influence how you induce anesthesia for the patients. Meaning um, it might influence whether you use a long-acting neuromuscular blocker? Correct. Yeah. So I, I may not induce with, um, you know, 10 milligrams of vecuronium if we're planning on running motor evoked potentials right away as our neuromuscular blocking agents will, um, will significantly decrease, significantly decrease or, or eliminate the motor evoked potentials and they can have, um, effects on, um, electromyography as well. Right. So you may elect to use succinylcholine or even to not use a neuromuscular blocker at all. Uh, if they need a pre-flip baseline. Correct. Um, for spine surgeries, I'll say that we, we pretty routinely monitor somatosensory evoke potentials, motor evoke potentials, and um, we do run EMGs or electromyographies as well. Um, not only can our uh, neuromuscular blockers affect the motor evoke potentials, but also our inhalational anesthetics can decrease the MEP signals. Um, oftentimes at, at Johns Hopkins, we will run an inhalational anesthetic for many of these cases. So typically what I will do is once I have a stable anesthetic, I will set it and leave it. And that way we have our baseline signals. We will, um, they're able to do their neuromonitoring. Um, and if there are any changes, we want to be able to say that it's, it, it's not because we've been adjusting our anesthetic on our side. It's, um, it may be something on the surgical side. So I, I want to take our, our side of the equation out of the picture in case signals start changing. So I have a set it and leave it strategy. Um, I tell my residents, if you feel that you need to make any changes to your anesthetic at all, discuss with your attending first and be sure to communicate with the neuromonitoring specialist in the room if, um, if there's one present so that they're aware. Um, and if we are using neuromuscular blocker um, throughout the case, then I typically run an infusion to keep a relatively stable level and instead of giving um, boluses of a neuromuscular blocker that can obliterate their signals. Um, so and I think that varies quite a bit too from institution to institution. We, at, at, when I was a resident, we did not use neuromuscular blockers at all during spine or craniotomy cases for the purpose of, mm -hmm. of the neuromonitoring. Our neuromonitoring folks did not want any. They wanted four full twitches, whereas I've been interested to see here at Hopkins, uh, as you said, that two twitches it, they tend to be happy with. So I think you really want to discuss this with your neuromonitoring folks. So, so check in with them frequently. I think, um, you know, as Jed was alluding to, this definitely is different between institutions. So understanding what, what's common at your institution um, and how to um, tailor your anesthetic appropriately is, um, is very important. I, I do find that if our baseline signals are particularly poor at the start or they're not getting um, good signals. If, if they don't have any signals at all, we may need to wake the patient up and, and 
do a neurologic exam even before we start the surgery. But um, if the signals are weak and they don't feel that they're going to be able to monitor very well during the case, a TIVA technique may be may be appropriate um, instead of an inhalational technique. So um, so take these into consideration. Um, when you are creating your anesthetic. Um, I think part of the key to a lot of what we've been discussing is communication, and that's so important for any neurological procedure or, or really for anything that we do in anesthesia, communicating with the surgeons and communicating um, with everybody in the room about our concerns and how can we best take care of these patients. Absolutely. All right, so when you're thinking about waking the patient up, what's important to keep in mind? Um, I, for any of my neuro cases, I think I think that I want a very crisp, rapid emergence so that we can get a good neurologic exam. So we talked about that with the craniotomy procedures, and the same thing holds true for the for the spines. Even if um, if during a case you're only running somatosensory evoked potentials, the signals may be beautiful all throughout, and you don't want to run into the situation where a patient wakes up. And, or is emerging from anesthesia, but they're emerging a little slowly and they're not moving everything. You don't know if there was a motor injury or if it's just because they're they're slow to emerge. So I try to titrate everything off. I want to get that nice neurologic exam. Make sure that they're moving their feet. Make sure that I can that they're squeezing my hands and that they're strong. That they're if you use paralysis, that they're appropriately reversed at the end of the case. Um, I typically tell my residents um, not to administer any anything that's going to be suppressing our ability to wake them up. So I will typically not give any boluses of propofol towards the end. I make sure that we have turned our ketamine off appropriately. Remember that um, if you're running a ketamine infusion, and I tend to run a pretty high infusion during the case, I'll usually give a bolus dose of one milligram per kilo shortly before induction and then run about 10 mics per kilo per minute during the case. Um, which is, is a pretty significant dose. It certainly contributes to your anesthetic. Um, remember that you need to turn that off. Um, my rule of thumb is generally about an hour before the surgery is going to end. So if it's a big all-day surgery and the, the screws are in place and they're putting in the, the rods, I'll typically turn it off at that point because I know that there's going to be some time for closure. Um, understanding the cases and how they progress is really going to help help the residents and, and help help you understand when to turn it off as as ketamine can be a reason for a delayed emergence in some of these patients. Absolutely. And then the thing you mentioned which I'll emphasize is it's not uncommon for me to see that you know the surgeons are done, they're closing and the patient gets a little light and moves just a touch and the surgeons say, "Oh, you know, they're waking up." and the resident might push 50 of propofol, right? And so I would avoid that. I try to say to my residents, avoid that. It's okay, right? They're just closing skin. It's okay if the patient moves a tiny bit. They're not awake. Um, and it's not that you can't give anything, but you do want to realize that pushing 50 of propofol can actually significantly impair their uh, wake up uh, or delay quite a bit, especially if they've been on propofol during the case. Yeah. So it, it may or may not, I, I tend to be a little bit more conservative about that. And, and if need be, I'll turn up the my um, oxygen flows and turn up the inhalational anesthetic and, and deepen the anesthesia a little bit more that way. It's, it, it's a measure, it's a metric that I can, I can use. I can watch the end tidal concentrations and I can use that a little bit better than um, every patient's a little bit different and how they're going to be metabolizing the IV agents. And so that, that's my general rule of thumb, but you know, other, other attendings and other institutions may have different preferences. Great. All right. So let's move on to talk about some specific types of spine cases and things you want to keep in mind for those. 
maybe let's start with a laminectomy and discectomy. Sure. So um, these procedures often used to decompress a stenotic area of the spine. Um, they may be used to repair, remove, or replace non-functional discs. Um, these can discectomies we pretty routinely do um, anterior cervical discectomies infusions, um, and they they place a spacer inside of the disc. Um, they typically don't involve fusing the bone, and they really, for the most part, don't lose much blood. Um, they're not drilling into the bone and um, and oozing in that way. So um, unless there's a medical indication for an arterial line, most of the time I will do these cases under generally anesthesia with either one or two IVs depending on the procedure um, and sometimes depending on whether we're going to be tucking the arms against the patient's body. If that's the case, I, I typically like to have a second IV um, because it's very difficult to place an IV while the patient is prone and, and tucked. So having a redundant IV um, can be very helpful. Um, I typically will give fentanyl or Dilaudid as, as needed throughout the case. Um, but again, if the patient has a very high opioid requirement, I may also administer some ketamine for these patients as well. Great. So how about fusions? These are kind of, you know, I think of as your kind of prototypical spine case. There's anterior fusions and posterior fusions. So what do you think about for those? Yes. So um, so the fusion cases that, that we typically do range from one to two levels in cervical, thoracic, and lumbar areas all the way to multiple levels. Um, I remember as a new attending, one of the first cases that I had was a T3 to sacrum fusion, and, and that's a very large case. And so you may be doing that for a patient with significant kyphoscoliosis. Um, so, so the management for those is going to be very different. Um, we do we do do anterior fusions as well, um, and most of the time we do posterior fusions. And my approach to the anterior and posterior fusions is a little bit different. Um, you may also have cases where where the surgeons are doing multiple stages. So you might start out with the prone portion and then change the patient's position so that they're supine and they may work anteriorly. And then you may change the patient prone again and or vice versa. So there may be some changes in positioning throughout the case. Um, for the anterior cervical discectomies and fusions or ACDFs, typically these are performed with the patient supine. They usually have minimal blood loss. Um, I'll do these cases with either one or two IVs, depending on the clinical situation. Um, usually not an arterial line, again, unless there's a medical indication um, to do them. Um, we do do some posterior C-spine fusions. The One of the special considerations for these is that the patients may be in Mayfield pins. So do be, and this is one of the few cases of spines where we do, um, where we do pin the patients and stabilize the head and neck. And so, um, again, at, at the Hopkins, we pretty routinely use some degree of neuromuscular blockade while patients are in Mayfield pins. At other institutions, this may be different, but you certainly don't want your patient to be moving um, at all while they're, they're in pins. There's always the risk that the pins may slip, cause scalp lacerations, um, or um, in very extreme cases, potentially orbital injuries or, ne or neck injuries. So, so that's another consideration. I will either... Um, try to talk with the surgical team and determine where the pin sites might be so that we could administer local anesthetic at those sites, or, um, or I'll give an opioid analgesic prior to pinning to prevent significant hemodynamic changes. Um, for, the, for the neck surgeries, um, I will also say, as we've alluded to before, taking very special care with the airway for these patients. 
um, especially depending on what the patient's symptoms are, what their physical exam is like. Do they have good range of motion in their neck or is it significantly limited? I've certainly had patients where um, they've had neck extension that is limited enough that they have a chin on chest phenomenon. And in those cases, typically they're not going to be able to open their mouth very well. And so you may need to do an awake fiber optic technique. So your physical exam is going to be um, playing into your airway management in these cases as well. Absolutely. Um, the We'll talk a little bit about anterior approach to the thoracolumbar spine. Um, these are Again, they're an anterior approach through the abdomen, so the, the patient is supine. Um, most of the time, the blood loss is minimal. Some surgeons will have a vascular team that comes in and helps with some of the dissecting to get down to the spine. Um, other surgical, other surgeons will, will do the dissection themselves. Um, and as I'm sure you all are aware, there are some very large vessels in, in the abdomen. And so um, I always make sure that the patient has a good type and screen um, in, in available in the blood bank because most of the time, I'd say 99% of the time, we don't need to transfuse anything. We can do these cases with one or two IVs. But there have been cases where um, one of the iliac vessels gets, gets inadvertently punctured or um, in a very bad situation where the aorta gets injured in some way, um, you want to be able to have access to the patient and, and start administering blood. Typically, we'll have the arms available to us. So in those cases, um, you may see some hemodynamic changes. I would immediately call for help and get extra assistance in the room if you need more lines or arterial access or vasopressors while you're also trying to get blood products in the room. But again, this is rare. It, it's rare that that happens, but just to be aware that that's always a possibility. Um, if this approach is very high on the thoracic spine um, and they feel like they're getting into the thoracic cavity, um, you may need to consider placing also a double lumen tube for some of these cases. Most of the ones that we do at um, Johns Hopkins through the anterior approach at least are in the lower um, thoracolumbar region and so um, this isn't usually a concern but it is something that, that could potentially um, come up in, in your practice. Um, for these um, again, depending on the extent of the fusion and the patient's baseline level of pain, I will administer fentanyl and, and hydromorphone throughout the case, and usually uh, ketamine as well. Most of the time, these patients have pretty significant pain coming in. Great. How about uh, posterior fusions? So posterior fusions are um, the last ones that I'll be talking about, and this is, again, very general um, general overview of, of our posterior fusions. Um Again, safety is, is of utmost concern, and we talked a little bit about line positioning for these cases as well. Um, they're done under general anesthesia, of course, as with any of these spine surgeries. Usually, I typically use an inhalational anesthetic, but you can certainly do a TIVA technique should, should you feel that that's appropriate, um, and depending on what, um, what kind of neuromonitoring you're going to be doing. Um, we talked a pretty extensively about the analgesics. I'll pretty routinely run ketamine um, for these um, bigger spines. Um, and we already talked about titrating the ketamine off towards the end as you want a very good neuro neurologic exam. Um, typically, for, for the cases that, that I'll do a multi-level fusion, I will cross-match several units of red blood cells ahead of time. I'll make sure that we have some um, fresh frozen plasma available as well. Um, and we already talked about the possibility of having a cooler in the room. 
I'll typically have my residents or CRNAs also place very large bore peripheral access um, as sometimes these cases, especially if there are revision spine in the same area, they can lose a lot of blood relatively quickly if they're taking out hardware and putting in new hardware and restabilizing. If in examining the patient preoperatively, you feel that peripheral access may be um, a, a concern for you, then I'll talk with the surgeon and with the patient about the possibility of placing a central line for either volume or vasopressor administration during the case. Um, you will probably need to check labs pretty frequently. I routinely check um, an arterial blood gas for the hemoglobin um, every hour um, as the surgeons are getting into the portion of the surgery where they're starting to lose more blood. As I, I want to know, um, I want to know where I am and kind of clinically correlate that with where the surgical team is and how the patient's doing hemodynamically. Um, I always have albumin available in the room. Um, as well as calcium gluconate or calcium chloride, depending on what kind of access you have and what you have at your institution in case you've started to um, transfuse significant amounts of blood. Um, the, most of the blood loss happens with the hardware um, placement during the surgery, so, so that's the time when you really need to be vigilant and, and watching. Um, I will also say that it's Again, I can't emphasize this enough. It's very easy to get behind in resuscitating some of these patients. Check your labs. Check the surgical field. Check the labs and the canisters. Um, you never know when a canister is hiding, and sometimes you may think there's only one and it only has a little bit of blood in it, but then you peek around the drapes or you walk around the room and there's another one that's half full. So I always tell my residents, you know, walk around the room. There's always something to do. There's always something to take a look at. And, um, you know, the surgical team is busy operating. Part of our job is to keep the patient safe and... Um, watch the urine output, watch the hemodynamics. And if you feel the patient is starting to lose blood quickly, even if the last hemoglobin was okay, um, talk with your attending, talk with the surgeons about starting to transfuse. And, and certainly if the patient's becoming hemodynamically unstable. Great. I think that's all incredibly good advice and very helpful for anyone doing these cases. Allison, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Well, thank you for having me. All right. That was really useful, really great stuff. Check out the website, acrac.com, where you can leave a comment. Let us know what you think about this episode. Is this how you do anesthesia for spine cases? Is there anything we forgot, anything you'd like to add? Everybody can learn from the comments that you leave, accrac.com. Also, you can email me at acrac at acrac.com. And as always, huge thank you to Jason Park for putting together the outlines that you'll find on some of the episodes. They're really useful, especially if you're using these episodes to study. And to everyone who is a patron at patreon.com, uh, thank you for supporting the making of the show. If you're a fan of the show, consider going to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash a-c-c-r-a-c where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. Of course, also, if you are a fan of the show, consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show when they're looking for an anesthesia-related podcast. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Allison Russo, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.